The time is now. Volume 6, episode 119. This is Employment Law Now. I am Mike Schmidt, your host and the vice chair of the Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor. It's like we just blinked. I feel like I was just celebrating the fact that it was Memorial Day weekend, and like we just blinked, here we are in the beginning of September, the fall season upon us, Labor Day weekend past us. Uh, it's all a little bit crazy, if you ask me, but like uh, life, this summer went by speedingly fast. I hope everyone had a good summer. Hope you were able to get out, disconnect a little bit, relax a little bit for the end of year push. But there were some things that you probably missed while you were disconnecting, while you were lounging around for a couple of months to the extent you could. What was it that you missed this summer? Well, I am glad you have put me on here because volume 119 is going to give you a few things that you may have missed over this past summer. Let's start with this. What is more fun to read than a judge's decision with some pop culture references? On August 18th of this 2022, a Florida federal court issued a preliminary injunction barring enforcement for the time being of Florida's ban on certain types of workplace training. You will remember that Florida enacted the Individual Freedom Act, which prohibited employers from endorsing, either through workplace training or otherwise, eight specific concepts. What were those eight specific concepts? Well, you were not allowed to do any type of workplace training or have any type of materials that suggested that members of one race, color, sex, or national origin were morally superior to members of another race, color, sex, or national origin. You couldn't suggest that an individual by virtue of his or her race, color, sex, or national origin is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. You couldn't suggest that an individual's moral character or status as either privileged or oppressed is necessarily determined by his or her race, color, sex, or national origin. Four, you couldn't suggest that members of one race, color, sex, or national origin cannot and should not attempt to treat others without respect to race, color, sex, or national origin. That's only half of them. Number five, you couldn't suggest in this um, act 
that an individual by virtue of his or her race, color, sex, or national origin bears any responsibility for or should be discriminated against or receive adverse treatment because of actions committed in the past by other members of the same race, color, sex, or national origin. The Individual Freedom Act in Florida also prohibited you as a company, as an employer, from suggesting that an individual by virtue of his or her race, color, sex, or national origin should be discriminated against or receive adverse treatment in order to achieve diversity, equity, or inclusion. Seven, you couldn't suggest that an individual by virtue of his or her race, color, sex, or national origin bears personal responsibility for and must feel guilt, anguish, or some other form of psychological distress because of actions in which that individual played no part committed in the past by other members of the same race, color, sex, or national origin. And lastly, number eight, you could not suggest that such virtues as merit, excellence, hard work, fairness, neutrality, objectivity, and racial color blindness are racist or sexist, or were created by members of a particular race, color, sex, or national origin in order to oppress members of another race, color, sex, or national origin. The Florida Individual Freedom Act made it clear that you were not prohibited from discussing any of those eight concepts that I just mentioned, as long as they were presented in an objective manner without endorsement of the concepts. Well, along comes a lawsuit, as you'd expect, uh, and a preliminary injunction request seeking to ban enforcement of uh, the Individual Freedom Act. You didn't need to get too far into the decision to know where the judge was going when the very first sentence of the decision on page one makes a pop culture reference to drive home the point. The case is Honeyfund.com Inc. versus DeSantis. And the very first sentence goes like this, quote, In the popular television series Stranger Things, the Upside Down describes a parallel dimension containing a distorted version of our world. Recently, Florida has seemed like a First Amendment upside down, end quote. The court goes on to say a few sentences later, quote, Now, like the heroine in Stranger Things, the court is once again asked to pull Florida back from the upside down. Well, for those uh, of you employers uh, in the state of Florida or who have operations in the state of Florida, employees in the state of Florida, um, where you have been a little bit perplexed as to what you can and can't do when it comes to corporate training and certain workplace policies and practices, the uh, court, the federal court, the Northern District of Florida just granted a preliminary injunction barring enforcement of this Individual Freedom Act saying, quote, because the challenged provision of the act is a naked viewpoint-based regulation on speech that does not pass strict scrutiny, it cannot survive. And so there you have it for the time being, and unless the Circuit Court of Appeals comes in and reverses or there is some other action taken by the legislature, the Florida Individual Freedom Act cannot be enforced. Moving along on what else you missed this summer, and I, I would, if you're looking for a theme uh, as to some of these uh, developments and trends from the summer, I think one of the takeaways 
could be the rise of the balancing test or the reintroduction of the balancing text and the fall of absolutes. The rise of balancing tests and the fall of absolutes. What do I mean by that? Well, let's take a look at what happened this summer on July 12th, 2022. The EEOC updated its guidance when it comes to the intersection between COVID-19 and anti-discrimination laws. It is a recognition, I think, of the constantly evolving thought process on these issues on the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the reality that rules and guidance deemed necessary at one time, particularly in the beginning of a catastrophic pandemic, may no longer be needed or warranted as the pandemic no longer has the same dire or extreme impact. There are fewer absolutes now and perhaps more balancing. So you know, because you've been listening to these episodes for the past two years at least, that the EEOC issued guidance on all things COVID-19 and throughout the last couple of years has on occasion updated those questions to respond to those in the community who had some confusion from the initially published questions, as well as to update things based on changes in these issues. On July 12th, the EEOC updated its guidance on a few points, and I wanted to highlight some of those for you today. Again, on this notion of bringing back balancing tests and eliminating a lot of the absolutes that we once saw. So Section A of the EEOC guidance dealing with disability-related inquiries and medical exams, there were a few updated questions on July 12th. Question A5, when an employee returns to the workplace after being out with COVID-19, does the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, allow employers to still require a note from a qualified medical professional explaining that it is safe for the employee to return and that the employee is able to perform the job duties? The EEOC has clarified the answer is yes. As a practical matter, employers may wish to consider other ways to determine the safety of allowing an employee to return to work, the EEOC has said. If doctors and other healthcare professionals are unable to provide such documentation either in a timely manner or at all, but yes, an employer is allowed to require a note explaining that it is safe for that employee to return, that is, that there is no risk of transmission if the employee returns. There are two types of tests that are addressed in the COVID guidance here, a COVID-19 viral test as well as an antibody test. And on July 12th, the EEOC gave a little bit of an update on both of those. First, with regard to COVID-19 viral tests, Question A6, may an employer, as a mandatory screening measure, administer a COVID-19 viral test to detect the presence of COVID-19 when evaluating an employee's initial or continued presence in the workplace? And here the EEOC clarified, yes, an employer can. However, there's no absolute anymore. The employer now has to show that doing so is job-related and consistent with business necessity. The ADA itself requires that any mandatory medical test of employees be, quote, job-related and consistent with business necessity, end quote. So the EEOC is saying that employer use of a COVID-19 viral test 
to screen employees will meet the business necessity standard when it is consistent with current guidance from the CDC, the FDA, and or state, local, or public health authority that is current at the time the testing is being done. The EEOC cautions employers to remember that all of these agencies are periodically updating and revising their recommendations. So essentially, stay tuned as to what will continue to be um, permissible and what won't be. The EEOC goes on to say that if an employer seeks to implement screening testing for employees, again, that testing now must meet the business necessity standard based on relevant facts. So that is when it comes to the COVID-19 viral test. What about an antibody test? Can an employer, for ADA purposes, require antibody testing before allowing employees to re-enter the workplace? On July 12th, the EEOC clarified by saying no, because as of July 2022, CDC guidance explains that antibody testing may not show, in fact, whether an employee has a current infection, nor may it establish that an employee is immune to infection. And for those reasons, the EEOC says that an antibody test should not be used to determine whether an employee may enter the workplace. Such testing does not meet the ADA's business necessity standard for permissible medical examinations or inquiries directed at employees. Section C of the EEOC's guidance dealing with hiring and onboarding was also updated on July 12th. Question C1, if an employer is hiring, can it screen applicants for symptoms of COVID-19 still? The EEOC says yes. An employer may screen job applicants for symptoms of COVID-19 as long as a conditional job offer has been made, as long also as the employer does so for all employees entering into the same type of job. What about withdrawing a job offer when it needs an applicant to start working immediately, either specifically at the work site or in the physical presence of others outside of the work site, because that individual who's about to start tested positive for COVID-19, has symptoms of COVID-19, or has been exposed recently to someone with COVID-19. And on July 12th, the EEOC has clarified that an employer who is following current CDC guidance may withdraw a job offer in three situations. If one, the job requires an immediate start date, two, CDC guidance at that time recommends that the person not be in proximity to others. And three, if the job requires such proximity to others, whether at the physical workplace or somewhere else. Question C5, may an employer postpone the start date or withdraw a job offer because the employer is concerned that the individual is older, is pregnant, or has some underlying medical condition that the employer believes puts the individual at increased risk from COVID-19. On July 12th, the EEOC updated its guidance to say no. While an employer's concern for an applicant's well-being may be a laudatory intent, an intent to protect them from what it perceives as a risk of illness from COVID-19 does not excuse action that would otherwise be unlawful. 
And therefore, simply because an individual falls within some group does not in and of itself justify unilaterally postponing the employee's start date or withdrawing a conditional job offer. Section D, you'll remember, deals with disability and reasonable accommodation questions. Question D17 was updated on July 12th. The question is, might the pandemic result in excusable delays during the interactive process that the employer is required to go through with the employee? The EEOC clarified again, yes, it might result in the excusable delay of the interactive process. Not in all cases, though. The employer has the burden of showing that some specific pandemic-related circumstance justified the delay in providing a reasonable accommodation to which the employee was legally entitled. The EEOC goes on to say, to the extent that evolving circumstances created by the pandemic cause a justifiable delay in the interactive process, thereby delaying a decision on an employee's request, employers and employees are still encouraged to use interim solutions to enable employees to keep working as much as possible. Section G deals with the return to the workplace. Question G1, as government restrictions continue to be lifted or even modified, how will employers know what steps they can take consistent with the ADA to screen employees for COVID-19 before entering the workplace? Again, as I said at the beginning of this, on July 12th, the EEOC has clarified for us that there are no more absolutes. We are no longer at the beginning of this pandemic. So it's back to a balancing text. It's back to what the ADA requires. So that like all other disability-related inquiries and medical exams when it comes to screening employees, Employers are permitted to screen employees for COVID-19 when entering the workplace under the ADA, again, if such screening is job-related and consistent with business necessity. Question G2. If an employer requires workers to wear personal protective equipment or engage in other infection control protocols, how should an employer respond when employees ask for accommodations, either due to a disability or a sincerely held religious belief. On July 12th, the EEOC reaffirmed that in most instances, the EEO laws, at least on the federal level, do permit an employer to require employees to wear personal protective equipment and observe other infection control practices. Some employers may need to comply with certain regulations issued by OSHA. However, it's still important to remember that when an employee with a disability needs a reasonable accommodation under the ADA, or when an employee requires a religious accommodation under Title VII, at least for the EEO laws that the EEOC enforces, the employer is reminded to still discuss the request and provide an accommodation if it does not cause an undue hardship on the operation of the employer's business under the ADA or Title VII. There are a variety of other questions that are updated uh, on July 12th. Moving to Section K when it comes to vaccinations, Question K1 
says under the ADA, Title VII, and other federal employment non-discrimination laws, may an employer require all employees to be vaccinated against COVID-19. And on July 12th, the EEOC reaffirmed that the federal EEO laws do not prevent an employer from requiring all employees to be vaccinated against COVID-19, of course, subject to reasonable accommodations for disability and religion. If there is a requirement that employees be vaccinated, the EEO laws also do not prevent employers from requiring documentation or other confirmation that employees are up to date on their vaccinations. But again, we're reminded that the EEO laws may require employers to make exceptions to a vaccination requirement for some employees who are entitled to an accommodation. The EEOC is also making it clear that employers should keep in mind that because some individuals or some members of a particular demographic group may face barriers to receiving a COVID-19 vaccination in the first place, some employees may be more likely to be negatively impacted by a mandatory vaccine requirement. In response to question K4, the EEOC has reminded us on July 12th that information about an employee's COVID-19 vaccination still is considered to be confidential medical information under the ADA. And has also reminded us in response to K5 that an employer may require an individual with a disability to still meet a qualification standard applied to all in, uh, employees, such as a safety-related standard requiring COVID-19 vaccination as long again, and here we go back to this balancing test, as long as the standard being applied is job-related and consistent with business necessity as it is applied to that employee. The EEOC has stated in this new guidance, as a best practice, any employer that is introducing a COVID-19 vaccination policy and is requiring documentation or other confirmation of vaccination the employer should notify all employees specifically that the employer will consider requests for reasonable accommodation based on disability or based on religious need on an individualized case-by-case -case basis. Finally, in response to question K-16 dealing with incentives, the question is, does the ADA limit the value of the incentive employers may offer to employees for voluntarily receiving a COVID-19 vaccination. And here too, the EEOC is reminding us of the line drawn. The ADA on the one hand does not limit the incentives, either through rewards or through penalties, that an employer may offer to encourage employees to voluntarily receive a COVID-19 vaccination or to provide to the employer confirmation of the vaccination as long as the healthcare provider who is administering the vaccine is not the employer itself or the employer's agent. On the other hand, if an employer is offering an incentive to employees to voluntarily receive a vaccination that is administered by the employer or its agent, then we got to go back to the ADA rules on disability-related inquiries, and we've got to make sure that not only are they justified by business necessity and job-related, but the value of the incentive may not be so substantial as to be coercive.
I expect that the EEOC will tweak its guidance, maybe answer some additional and maybe some new questions as we continue in the coming months. But for now, that's what you may have missed this summer from the EEOC. Let's stay with COVID-19 guidance for a little bit. The CDC has itself issued some new guidance over the summer that you may have missed. Remember that anything coming from the CDC is in fact guidance, maybe best practices, but it is not the rule of law. Nevertheless, on August 11th, 2022, the CDC said that instead of, instead of a mandatory quarantine period, people who have been exposed to COVID-19, regardless of their vaccination status, should wear a high-quality mask for 10 days following exposure when they are indoors or around others, and then get tested after at least the fifth day from exposure. So if you've been exposed to COVID-19, regardless of your vaccination status, you are no longer recommended by the CDC to be put in a mandatory quarantine as long as you get tested after the fifth day and as long as you wear a, quote, high-quality mask, end quote. Other tidbits from the CDC last month. If you test positive or if you show symptoms, it is still recommended that you go in isolation for at least five days. This update from the CDC is certainly good for those employers who want to reduce the number of days that employees are out of work simply because they may have been exposed to somebody but don't themselves have any positive test or show any symptoms. However, it still continues to be a little tricky for employers who do want to go beyond CDC guidance when it comes to the need to create a safe and healthy workplace, or for those who have employees who may be at high risk and who are concerned about coming into work when they know somebody has been exposed to COVID-19. <clears throat> Back to vaccine mandates for a moment. Not the generally applicable one that everybody was talking about for so long, but the one governing federal contractors. On August 26, 2022, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals changed what had been a nationwide injunction issued last year by a Georgia federal court. The 11th Circuit's decision overturned that nationwide injunction that barred the federal government from enforcing an executive order requiring covered federal contractors and subcontractors to provide certain COVID-19 protocols, including a vaccine mandate. Although the 11th Circuit did uphold the injunction generally, it limited to not nationwide anymore, but it limited it to those states only that were represented by plaintiff parties in this case. Alabama, Georgia, Idaho, Kansas, South Carolina, Utah, and West Virginia. And it's limited only to the states themselves, not companies located in those states or contracts that may be performed in those states. The 11th Circuit found that the president exceeded his authority in his executive order, but that the prescription should not have had any nationwide reach. Therefore, the vaccine mandate is still in place in those particular states, or at least the injunction against the vaccine mandate is still in place in those particular states. 
And we're still seeing a lot of vaccine mandate litigation out there still wreaking havoc, particularly for multi-jurisdictional companies, as well as the states across the country trying to enforce still various COVID-related requirements. So take away again, keep your eyes and ears open. This still will not be the last that you hear about vaccine mandates for federal contractors or otherwise. And just when you thought that COVID-19 was the last of the virus craziness, here comes monkeypox. According to CDC, monkeypox, at least the source of monkeypox, is still unknown, still not confirmed, though current thought is that non-human primates, like monkeys, might harbor the virus and infect people. The CDC says that it's part of the same family of viruses that cause smallpox, although it is milder in its symptoms than smallpox, and it's not related to chickenpox, and it is not typically fatal. Now that we are seeing an apparent 2022 outbreak, of course, we need to look at some of the labor and employment issues associated with monkeypox. Well, from a timeline standpoint, back on July 23rd, 2022, the World Health Organization declared monkeypox to be a public health emergency. Certain states, including New York, California, and Illinois, have also declared a state of emergency in light of the outbreaks this year. On August 4th, the federal government declared monkeypox to be a public health emergency as well. It's not yet at the level of COVID-19, and it is not yet prompting the same patchwork of regulations and protocols we saw, particularly in 2020 and 2021, when it came to COVID-19. But there are some things to still consider. First, monkeypox is not considered transmittable by airborne particles, but many of the, the statistics have shown that it is infecting at a higher rate percentage-wise gay and bisexual men. It is found to spread primarily through close personal contact with an infected source, particularly through sexual contact. So it's really important if you have somebody in the workplace who develops or may be developing monkeypox to not allow you as the employer, supervisors, managers, to have assumptions or to engage in harassment or discrimination based, for example, on sexual orientation or gender identity simply because of the news reports identifying the likely sources of monkeypox. Also, it's important to continue to be mindful of confidentiality under federal and state law as well as accommodation obligations that may arise from somebody who needs an accommodation because of monkeypox. We're not seeing, again, monkeypox rise to the same level, not nearly the same level as COVID-19. But like everything else, you need to be mindful of how an issue like this can develop into potential problems in the workplace with your workforce. We haven't touched on the United States Department of Labor in a while, but you may have missed this summer that the Department of Labor has issued guidance. 
something that the Department of Labor does not do nearly as frequently as other agencies, like, of course, the EEOC. But Department of Labor guidance is equally as impactful and equally as important. Particularly noteworthy here this summer, as the issue of mental health continues to be so prevalent. And we have seen an uptick in ADA discrimination and accommodation cases when it comes to mental health and mental disability issues. But while we talk so much about the ADA and the required interactive and accommodation process, don't forget the Federal Family Medical Leave Act, the FMLA. The FMLA, you know, is not administered or enforced by the EEOC. Rather, it is enforced by the United States Department of Labor. However, failing to comply with the very strict and often technical requirements of the FMLA will lead to bad results for your organization. Remember, the FMLA allows that eligible employees, those who have worked at least 12 months for the organization, those who have worked at least 1,250 hours in the prior 12 months, as long as you've got 50 or more employees. Such eligible employees, for certain covered reasons, are entitled to 12 weeks of unpaid leave, continued health benefits, and restoration to the same or an equivalent job. Well, just this summer in July, the Department of Labor issued two new guidance documents, Fact Sheet 280 on Mental Health Conditions and the FMLA, as well as Frequently Asked Questions on the FMLA's Mental Health Provisions. You can either go online and get them yourself, or feel free to email me, and I will be happy to send those to you. The takeaway is that we all must remember that a serious health condition, something that affords an entitlement to the benefits under the FMLA, does include mental health conditions that require inpatient care or ongoing treatment by a health care provider. It is often much easier to address physical disabilities, physical health conditions that an employee may have. It is far more difficult to either accept that an employee needs some sort of accommodation or some sort of leave, or in many cases, far more difficult to trust what an employee is telling you when we're dealing with mental health and mental health issues. The reminder, the takeaway, is that like the ADA, the Department of Labor is making sure you understand that mental health conditions may be covered for FMLA purposes. Precedent and more precedent. That's something else that you may have missed over the summer. On August 16th, 2022, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals became the first federal appellate court to rule that the ADA protects individuals who have gender dysphoria. For those keeping score at home, the case is Williams versus Kincaid, and it involved a transgender woman with gender dysphoria who was jailed in the men's housing unit in a Virginia correctional facility. She had apparently been treated for gender dysphoria for more than a decade, though she was recognized as a female by her domiciled state of Maryland and on her driver's license. Nevertheless, she was harassed and dis discriminated against by prison officials and other inmates. 
She sued under the ADA, and at issue was the ADA's definition of disability. Not the definition itself, but the ADA's explicit exclusion that does not get addressed very often, if ever, by most courts. There is an explicit exclusion in the ADA where you will not be covered under the ADA if you have a gender identity disorder not resulting from a physical impairment. The plaintiff in this case argued that gender dysphoria is not a gender identity disorder or alternatively it does result from a physical condition and therefore it does not fit within the exclusion and therefore the plaintiff should be entitled to pursue an ADA claim. Well, the court looked at the term gender identity disorder as of the time of the ADA's enactment in 1990 and determined based on studies that were done at the time that there is or at least could be a physical element to gender dysphoria that might not exist necessarily in other gender identity conditions. In fact, the plaintiff alleged quite clearly in this case that she experienced emotional psychological and physical distress as a result of her gender dysphoria and as a result the court found that she could establish potentially that she falls outside the ADA's exclusion and within the ADA's coverage. This case will be worth watching again the first federal appellate court to rule that the ADA protects individuals with gender dysphoria. Couple of takeaways while states continue to do their own thing on issues such as disability and accommodation, it is still critical that you take note when federal law speaks on an issue for all employers nationwide who are subject to the particular law, in this case, the ADA. Second takeaway is that the ADA continues to be interpreted broadly to maximize those people and those conditions that are protected under the Act. So employers, in most cases, tend to have an uphill battle when they're trying to persuade a court that a particular condition is not covered by the ADA. What else have we not talked about in some time? Four letters. The NLRB. The National Labor Relations Board. As I've told you time and time again, the NLRB enforces and administers the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act, which applies not just to union facilities, but also to non-union facilities. We know that the NLRB as a government body has shifted very much with the political winds over the last several years. The pendulum has once again shifted very much in favor of employees this summer on a significant issue. On August 29th, 2022, the Democratic majority of the NLRB ruled that Tesla violated the National Labor Relations Act by banning workers from wearing shirts that contained union logos during a 2017 union drive. One of the issues that I talk about a lot, one of the issues that I see uh, as a real, uh, real issue, frankly, for employers and employees alike, is this blurring of the line between work time and the workplace on the one hand and personal time, personal issues on the other hand. We're seeing employees in greater numbers for social justice issues, 
for the Me Too movement, for Black Lives Matters, for abortion rights, whether through social media or using an employer's own internal communication system during work hours, off work hours, there is this blurring of the line where employees are engaging in conduct and making statements of a non-business nature that employers may not like. And what have I been telling you for years when it comes to analyzing what you can do? Well, the first thing that you should do as an employer is not be knee-jerk in your reaction to employee statements or conduct that you just don't like. I'm not here to tell you as an employer that you can't take some sort of adverse action or discipline an employee for certain conduct or statements. What I am telling you is that before you do that instinctively, analyze the situation, make sure you are not violating a state lawful activities law, or in this case, the National Labor Relations Act, which allows employees to engage in protected concerted activity. Talk about the pendulum and the difficulty that employers and employees have in shaping behavior when the rules seem to change continuously. Back in 2019, I say back in 2019 like it was decades ago, the NLRB issued a decision that had afforded employers more leeway to restrict workers from wearing union insignia by no longer requiring the employer to show special circumstances warranting such a ban. That case was INRI Walmart. Well, the NLRB's decision just last week on August 29th overturned that 2019 Walmart decision, finding that that precedent had upset the proper balance struck by the Supreme Court back in its 1945 decision entitled Republic Aviation Corp. versus the NLRB, as well as ignored previous board precedent that any limitation on displaying union insignia is presumptively unlawful regardless of whether other Section 7 activity is permitted. And in this case, on August 29th, because the NLRB determined that Tesla failed to establish any special circumstances justifying a rule that employees wear team-only uniforms, banning union insignia on those uniforms was an unlawful implicit prohibition that violated the National Labor Relations Act. The NLRB is not the only one that stepped into the ring on this issue over the summer. Staying on topic, just two months prior to the August 29th decision of the NLRB, there was a June 29th, 2022 decision by the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. The case, for those keeping score at home, is Amalgamated Transit Union versus Port Authority of Allegheny County. In that case, the Port Authority required uniformed employees to wear face masks at work beginning at the start of the pandemic in April 2020. However, the Port Authority prohibited masks that bore any political or social justice messages. When several employees wore a Black Lives Matter message on their masks, they were disciplined by the Port Authority, and of course the employees then sued. Well, 
The district court, the lower court, first issued a preliminary injunction preventing the Port Authority from enforcing its policy. And on appeal, the Court of Appeals held that even though speech by government employees is entitled to less protection than speech of the general public, the Port Authority, here a government actor, still did not meet its burden of showing that a limitation on speech of its own employees passed First Amendment scrutiny. According to the decision, the Port Authority seemed particularly concerned about the potential for disruptions to operations from racial discord, racial tensions. But the court said that that sort of speculation, that fear, was not enough to justify this prohibition. Instead, the court said there must be a balancing between a government employee's interest in speaking versus a government employer's interest in restricting that speech. There were no absolutes. The balancing test was required. And in the very last paragraph of this decision, the court stated as follows, quote, Our decision is narrow. We hold only that at this early stage, Port Authority has not shown that its mask policies withstand constitutional scrutiny. And so the district court did not abuse its discretion to enjoin enforcement of that policy against Black Lives Matter masks. Another policy, another message, a uniform requirement, or another set of interests may be different. In each case, the specific facts and circumstances will be dispositive. In this case, we will affirm the district court. End quote. So while the uh, Court of Appeals, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, made it clear that this decision was limited to this set of facts, it is not going to be the only decision on this issue. The extent to which employers can and should regulate conduct and statements of employees will continue to be something that we all have to wrestle with, particularly with the continued use of social media to engage in certain conduct and to make certain statements. So keep an eye out for further decisions and further developments in this particular case. Well, that's what you missed this summer in just 45 minutes. We've seen the fall of a lot of absolutes We have seen the reincarnation of balancing tests and weighing of interests. What are we going to see out of the last half of 2022? Where are we going to be when it comes to the pandemic and social justice movements and Americans with Disabilities Act accommodations as we get into another new year just a few months away? Keep it right here because I will continue to update you all the latest trends and developments when it comes to employment law. Until the next time, though, I hope all of your labor is productive.